Brethren, turn with me in your copies of the Scripture to 2 Samuel 24. Today we conclude our, uh, our long process through the books of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, which originally were one book in the Hebrew Bible, but are two books in, in our uh, English Christian Bibles. I've titled today's message, King David's Final Recorded Act. It should be acts, plural. There were several final acts here. Uh, but uh, we will be looking at this circumstance with some care as uh, we conclude our study through Second Samuel. Brethren, hear once again the very words of God. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror and from the city, and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan, came to Gil, uh, came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and all the city of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went out to the Nagab of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days' pestilence in the land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of a man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. 
And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Araunai, the Jebusite. When David spoke to the Lord, when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Araunah, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word and the Lord, as the Lord commanded. And when Araunah looked down and saw the king and his servants coming on toward him, and Araunah went out to pay homage to the king with his face to the ground, and Araunah said, why, why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Araunah said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All this, O king, Araunah gives to the king. And Araunah said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Araunah, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David there, built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, in these last few acts of David's life, we see a, a, a sin against you, but we also see great repentance. We see sacrifice. We see judgment. We see all the things that your scriptures teach us encapsulated here in this one passage. We see redemption. We see reconciliation. We see the great and mighty works that you do in the lives of men. So, Father, we pray that we would learn well from this passage. That we would see that we should not harden our hearts against your holy laws and your commandments, but rather remain humble. Men of faith, men who do not walk by sight, but walk by faith. And we thank you, O Lord, for our dear Savior, Jesus, that great son of David, who sits at your right hand making intercession for us, as David made intercession for his people. And Father, we see the great mercy that you have toward your people, the mercy that you've shown toward us, the grace that you've bestowed upon us. Father, we pray that these would motivate us to love and good works, that these would goad us to do the work of intercession for this fallen world, to bring the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to many. We ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Brethren, as we reach the end of the books of Samuel, we find recorded for us some of the final official acts of King David. The last words of David, which we read in the previous chapter last week, were admirably good. But in this chapter, we read of some of his last works, which includes a great sin. Yet David repents, and so he finishes well. 
We have here five distinct elements recorded by God. The first being King David's sin, which was numbering the people in the pride of his heart. The second, his conviction of the sin that he had committed and his repentance. We find that in verse 10. The judgment inflicted upon him and Israel for their sin, verses 11 through 15. Fourth, God's relenting from that judgment, verses 16 and 17. And then finally, the erecting of an altar in token of God's reconciliation with both he, David, and his people, God's people, verses 18 through 25. So these five elements are all present as as part of David's final acts. And our text seems to begin in an odd fashion. Verse 1 clearly states that God is angered with Israel. Not initially David, but with Israel itself. Yet God incites David to number the people, or as we say, take a census. Your, some of your modern versions may, may use the word census. Here are the words of the first verse again. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. What is odd here is that God clearly requires of King David that a census be taken. But it is the very census that is taken that constitutes the sin for which David and all Israel will be judged. It seems inconsistent. Is God telling David to sin? Is he compelling him to sin? After all, David was only doing what the Lord commanded in taking the census, wasn't he? Well, these incongruities seem to appear from the text, but we need to look closely at the text. Herein is a passage we we would do well to carefully consider. By virtue of God's command to David, the census itself was not a sinful thing. The census itself was not a sinful thing. After all, Moses had twice before taken a census of Israel without acting sinfully. So it, there's precedent for it. God commanded David to do it. But why does it constitute a sin against God? King David takes a census that angers the Lord, even after God commanded the census be taken. We can only conclude that in the taking of the census, David did acts that were outside of his authority or outside of what God had required of him. And he did that out of the pride of his own heart. It was how he numbered the people and not merely for the census itself. Now it appears that in verse 9 we have a clue as to what this problem might be. Verse 9 reads, And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men valiant men who drew the sword and the men of Judah were 500,000. Brethren, commentators point to as many as five possible reasons for God's displeasure, his displeasure with David's census taking. But this phrase in verse 9 that I think helps us is the phrase, who drew the sword? 800,000 valiant men in Israel who drew the sword. God had told David to number all Israel, but the numbers came back of the might of Israel. 
those who drew the sword. Now we know from the book of Numbers that only men 20 years of age and older could participate in the army. And not even all of those men could participate. If they were cowardly, they weren't to be counted among the numbers of the army. If they were newly married and had not consummated their marriage, they weren't to be part of the number of the army. If they had bought a new house but they had, and property, but they hadn't seen the, the fruits of their labors in that property yet, they hadn't had their first harvest, they were not to be numbered among the army. But here, we see that Joab reports back to David those who drew the sword, those who were part of the might of Israel. So it may very well have been, I think very likely, that David only wanted to find out how strong his men were. He really had no interest in naming or numbering all of Israel, the covenant people that God had made for himself. In any event, God's anger was initially against Israel, and now, because of David's sin in the, in the way the census was taken, his anger has reached even to the king's palace. None were innocent in Israel. None were innocent. There is an irony in this account. I haven't... We read the, the passage, these first nine verses at the beginning of the sermon. There is an irony here considering when we consider who is confronting David with taking this unlawful census. It is Joab of all people. The bloodthirsty major general of David's army. Now I've said a lot about Joab over the last several months. Joab was, he was a gifted militarist. He was a strategist and a tactician. He could lead men in battle. was fearless in that regard. But Joab suffered from, from what God warns us against, and that is a vengeful spirit. He murdered two men because of their actions in warfare that he didn't like, but he murdered them. And he was left out of the listing, if you'll remember last week, of, God, of, of David's mighty men. Remember I pointed out that there was one name missing from that list? It was Joab, this major general. But it's this major general who confronts David and says in verse 3, Why does my lord the king delight in this thing? Why are you doing this this way? Of all people, Joab confronts David with his sin. This should have been a siren sounding and and flashing lights to David. It should have been an emergency vehicle coming right into his face. Here's the greatest of sinners in the kingdom saying you're about to sin against God. He should have awakened, awakened to that, but no. David persists in dishonoring God. And if there were ever a case in Scripture where the pot was calling the kettle black, this is it. David ignores the warning of Joab, and he goes on to sin against the Lord. Well, brethren, in the midst of all of this circumstance, we need to look at David as being a person who we ought to follow in righteousness. Not in his sin, 
but then how he deals with it. We should look upon David as a man after God's own heart. Not because he was without sin. David had plenty of sins. But because he was honest about his sin and dealt with it. And in verse 10, God records something very important for us. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. His heart struck him. If you would, take your bulletins. Go back to the call to confession in your bulletin. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And now go to, on the next page, flip one page to page four, the assurance of forgiveness. Psalm 34. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Verse 10 of our text, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. He was brokenhearted. His spirit was crushed. And David said to the Lord these words, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I've done very foolishly. Brother, we don't follow the example of David because he was a sinner. We follow the example of David, or we should follow the example of David in his repentance. Here's a man whose heart was crushed when he offended God. He understood it. He owned his own sin. He owned his own sin. And he came to grips with it before the Lord and before others. We're going to see that in just a moment. In that regard, David was a humble man. He had been elevated to the kingship of Israel. But when it came to his own sins, when he committed them, he would humble himself before God. And God would lift him up. Watch what happens. The Scriptures are are replete with this teaching. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. David was not exempt. It is the man or woman who honestly acknowledges their sin in confession and contrition that receive the mercies of God. David had already written in the Psalms, Psalm 51 in particular, a humble and a contrite heart you will not despise. And God would not despise this contrition that David shows here. Brethren, the Scriptures are replete with the importance of ownership. I mean, there's even a commandment about that. Thou shalt not steal, right? This is an important concept in Scripture. But we think about temporal things. We think about our neighbor's car or our neighbor's dog or our neighbor's wife or our night, those kinds of things. What about the ownership of our own actions? God teaches us from Scripture. We're to own those as well. And we're not try to, we should never try to dismiss it. We should come to grips with it when it's sinful. God judges sin, and that's our next point. In verses 11 through 15, we see that God judges Israel and David for the sins they had committed against him. And we read there these words, beginning in verse 11. And, then, and when David arose in the morning, 
the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you, choose one of them, that I may do it to you. Now it's interesting that, that, that God uses his servant, who is ordained to the purpose of being a, a, uh, the mouthpiece of God, the prophet Gad, he uses Gad to come to David. God uses those authoritative, uh, authoritative ordinations for a very, very important purpose. The prophets of God are—they are, are to point out the sins of Israel, are they not? And it, sometimes I have to point out your sins in your lives. Sometimes I do it from the pulpit. Sometimes I do it in your homes. Sometimes I do it in the car with you. Sometimes in a text or an email. Hopefully not too often there. Uh, I, I like to do it face to face. It's important when we deal with sin that we understand that we're sinning against people and against God Himself. And as image bearers of God, it's important that we confront one another face to face. That's why I don't write blogs about the evils of other people. It needs to be done face to face. Because sin is a very personal thing to God. It's an affront to Him and to His name. And so we need to, to confront one another in, in such a way. But the, the prophets of God, that was their job. Can you imagine? <laughs> That's not an enviable position, is it? That's why many of them died in Israel. The messengers, the Israelites would strike out against God and, and do what? Kill the messenger because they couldn't kill God. That's how hateful they were. You've got to kill something that's pointing out my sin. I'd, I would rather protect my sin than to repent of it. Fortunately, David did not have that attitude. His attitude was, I gotta get, I gotta deal with this sin and get it behind me. That's what I have to do. And I'll suffer the consequences. God, in his infinite mercy, gives David three options for judgment. Three options. Now he say, Well, none of them were good, Pastor Hickey. That's true, it's judgment all the same. But notice what God does. God understands that David's willing to take the consequences. Few of us have that kind of attitude, don't we? Few of us say, I've done wrong, it's time to accept the consequences. But David is willing to. And so God in His mercy and in His grace offers him three options. Uh, Do you want three years of famine? Or do you want to run from your enemies for three years? Or, how about three days of pestilence? Those are the three options. Notice in verse 12, God says, uh, Thus says the Lord, These three things I offer to you, choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land, or will you flee three months from before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Remember the contrite heart of David? The crushed spirit? It continues, I'm in great distress, he says. 
Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of a man. So David's response to this isn't, well, let's see, I'm going to weigh these three, three years of famine, that's a long time, three months running from my enemies, I've been doing that for the last 15 years, you know, what's three months? He could have said that. And then he could have said, three days? Boy, we can, we can get this over with in a hurry. What's three days? But David, David's not thinking about any of that. He's not thinking about time. In fact, he's in such great distress, we're going to look at it in a minute, when he makes intercession for his people. He's concerned not about himself, he's concerned about the effects that he's having on others. Rather than your sin... Your sin, as is the case with David as well, affects other people. We often don't think that. We think we can do it in hiding and get away with it. No, you can't. It has an effect beyond you, just as David's sin does. Now, I have to be careful here. The passage begins with God is angry with Israel for their sins, so all of the Israelites are sinners as well. They're going to be judged for their own sin. But David's sin affects other people, as was the case in his own household. Remember, the sword would not depart from his house because of his sin with Bathsheba. And we know what happened with Absalom. David is distressed over what what his sin is causing to happen to others. He's thinking beyond himself. That is admirable, brethren. That is the kind of attitude we are to have when we own our own sin. Well, God then chooses the three days of pestilence because David does what? He casts his cares on the Lord. Notice notice again what he says. I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord. David is casting this decision into the hands of God. You pick, Lord. And I think the, the latter part of that that last sentence, but let me not fall into the hand of a man. Who best to judge my sins? Me? That's falling into the hand of a man, isn't it? How could I possibly judge righteously? I'm the one who committed the sin. The incongruity is palpable. So what does David do? He trusts in the God who judges. He trusts in the God who judges. He trusts in the mercies of God. Even though he and all Israel are undeserving of God's mercies, he throws his cares upon the Lord. Now I want to make mention of something here. Any one of these three things would have been a just reward for the sins of David and Israel. But notice that God chooses the least lengthy. The least lengthy. In three days, it's all going to be over. One thing we miss when we read about the Old Testament, because God, God's ways are not our ways. His timelines aren't our timelines. But when He deals with sin, He brings it to conclusion. He brings it to an end, including the judgment. It's not something that perpetuates over and over again. 
Isn't that the case? It, it, let me ask this question. Is that the case with men judging other men? I'm, I'm going to say something, and I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm about to say, but I want to, I'm trying to point out the injustices of man's laws. If a man carries a few ounces of marijuana in his pocket, at least up until not too long ago, this would have been the case, is caught with that, and that happens, say, three times, he would be thrown in prison for potentially many years for doing something that is not condemned in Scripture. Is that just? Now, I'm not advocating the use of marijuana. Far be it for me to do that. I think there's some great evils with it. But we've got to be careful that we don't, we don't think we have a better way to justly deal with men than God does. David's sins were terrible, as were the sins of Israel, such that 70,000 men would die of a plague. That's what the word pestilence means here. The word plague is used later in the chapter. 70,000 people would die in the judgment of God. God was being just. But men's justice seemingly never ends. Often never ends. What about restoration and, and restitution? Is that even part of our judicial system? I'll have to ask Tom Hill about that. Or uh, not Tom Hill, but Tom Kidd. Tom Kidd about that. It, 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 it's literally nowhere. If, in the Old Testament, if you, if you stole something from your neighbor... What was the required response? You're caught at it. You're, you stole the thing. You were to return the things, the value of the thing that you stole. And then, depending upon the, the circumstance, as much as three times that value as well. Or four times the value of the thing you stole. You were to restore that to the person you stole it from. And it was over. You didn't go to jail. You weren't shackled. You weren't beaten. None of those things. You paid it back and the debt was paid. It was over. That's true justice. The way God does it. And here, God is meeting out justice. He's going to do it in three days. And it will be complete. Let's look at the, the judgment then. In verses 16 and 17, we see God's attribute of mercy. In the midst of the judgment, this judgment begins. The angel, the death, a death angel, much like in the case of uh, the Egyptians, is sent by God upon the people of Israel. And this death angel begins to sweep over Israel with a plague. And in verses 16 and 17, we read what happens. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, so it's already swept through part of Israel. Now we're getting to the capital city. We can't. <laughs> The word Jerusalem is important here. We're going to look at that in just a moment. When he gets to Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Stay your hand. Stop right now. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Araunah, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord 
when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned, I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Again, David does something that we should follow. He intercedes for the people of Israel. David the king says, This is my sin. I'm owning it. Judge me and my house. Don't judge the people any longer. We know from the text that it was for Israel's sin as well from the very first verse. They're being judged for their sin. But notice that David intercedes for the covenant people of God. And it was just before God got to Jerusalem with His judgment. The city of what? Shalom. The city of peace. Brethren, God often stays His hand of judgment. But it doesn't happen without intercession. It doesn't happen without intercession. Here David intercedes for Israel. The angel of the Lord was about to enter into Jerusalem, the city of peace, when God halted His advance and restored peace to Israel. The imagery of this act should not be overlooked. When God's judgment comes... Only God can restore peace. And He does it. That's the God we serve. The God who gives peace. Who who acts mercifully on behalf of His people. And He does it here. Then my final point from the text. And it should be a significant thought because it's a significant portion of the text. God talks a lot about how the the census is taking at the beginning of the chapter. But at the end of the chapter is the longest portion that, that's dealt with with regard to God's mercy. God requires that an altar be erected in commemoration of the mercy that He shows toward Israel. And this, this happens throughout the Old Testament. Such altars were erected wherever God had done mighty deeds. Virtually every Old Testament patriarch erected an altar in commemoration of one of God's mighty deeds. And often, it rehearsed a great mercy and a great grace that God had done on behalf of Israel. Now consider the placement of this particular altar. It is placed precisely where peace was restored. On the edges of Jerusalem. The death angel was moving throughout Israel with a plague that had claimed 70,000 men from Dan to Beersheba, and then it abruptly stops. All Israel knew where God's judgment ended, at the door of the city of peace. This was not hard to determine when David took note of the location. Pestilence had taken the lives of 70,000 people. And then it stopped. It stopped. David seeks a place to establish the altar and desires the threshing floor of a man named Arauna. I didn't have time to look at the etymology of the man's name. I'm quite certain it's important, but I have no idea what it is. What I do know is that David wants the threshing floor of this man's property. Brethren, the threshing floor is the place when the harvest is brought in 
where the wheat is separated from the chaff. That's where, the th- where it's done on the threshing floor. Separation of wheat and chaff. How fitting a place to erect an altar when God has separated in judgment 70,000 Israelites and then stopped the harvest of judgment that the harvest of God's covenant people might remain. Arauna, the, the threshing floor owner, wants to donate the threshing floor and the oxen along with, their, with their, uh, 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 the wood uh, shackles that are put on, not shackles, but the, what are they called? Yokes that are put on them to, to light the fires for the, the, uh, the uh, sacrifice that's about to be had on the threshing floor. He wants to donate all of that to David uh, for this particular altar. But David will have none of that. David refuses Arona's kind offer by saying, I will not offer a sacrifice to God that costs me nothing. If he had, if he had taken Arona up on his offer, it would not have been a sacrifice, would it? If it costs you nothing, is it truly a sacrifice? Of course not. The word itself means you have to give up something, right? David says, I'll not make an altar and offer a sacrifice that costs me nothing. I guess David never heard about uh, the tax-exempt status of gifts given to the church, right? No, David understood completely. He understood it doesn't matter if you get a, 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 a tax deduction for what you're offering. Your offering should be a sacrifice unto God. That's primarily what we should be doing. David pays for the threshing floor and the sacrifice and offers both burnt offerings and peace offerings to God on this newly constructed altar. It's important that we understand that two offerings are being offered here. Burnt offerings are sin offerings. He's offering a sacrifice for the sins both he and all Israel has committed. The peace offerings are the first fruits offerings that are given to God when renewal, when reconciliation has happened by God's people. You can't offer a peace offering before a burnt offering. Do you remember Cain and Abel? Do you remember them and the offerings they brought? What did Cain bring? He brought a peace offering. What did Abel bring? He brought a sacrifice offering. God says, I'm pleased with that one. I'm not pleased with yours, Cain. Cain gets upset, kills his brother over it. Why didn't he just go out and get a sacrifice offering? Repent of what he had done and turn to God with the proper things. It wasn't even in his mind. David understands the appropriateness of first dealing with sin and then trusting God for the increase. So both the burnt offering and the sacrifice offering in that order are brought to the Lord at the threshing floor. The place where the wheat and the tares are separated. Where the benefit of God's blessing is purified. Well, this is the, the final chapter in the life of David in the book of Second Samuel.
What was David's final recorded act? Too often people say it's the sinful census that he took of Israel. I would say it's the building of an offering or an altar and sacrificing an offering, an intercessory offering for sin and peace. Isn't that what his son did? Not Absalom, not Solomon, but the son of David. You know who he is. Let me pose a question to us. Are the days in which we live all that different from those days in Israel when God was pleased, displeased with the sins of His people and their king? Are our days so different from those days? The sins of our land are plethora. And we're counting our might, aren't we? Comparing it to the nations of the world. Trusting in the might that we've built up over the years. Oh, that we would have a king who recognized the sin of the people and acted as David in the midst of God's judgment. Oh, that we would have that kind of king. Maybe God will raise up such a king for our nation and the nations of the world who mimic us and try to mimic us over and over again. Oh, wait a minute. I think He has raised up such a king. I think God raised up a king who has interceded for the nations of the world. In fact, I believe that that king sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven and has been given all authority in heaven and on earth to intercede for the sins of the people and the kings of this earth. Brethren, there is no nation on earth outside His reach for which His intercession hasn't already been applied. Our Lord is returning one day to finally separate the wheat from the chaff at the threshing floor of the earth. Oh, that we would make ourselves a living sacrifice for the nations of the world, interceding on their behalf in the likeness of our King, Jesus, the ever-living Son of David who interceded for Israel. It's happening now. It's not yet some future event. The Gospel of Jesus Christ is in our hands. And redemption draws nigh. It is for us to proclaim that good news and to do the hard work of owning our sins and calling men to repentance that God might lift them up and reconcile men to the Father. Let us pray together.